Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion, addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Do you know when the U.S. was founded? No. Take a guess. Probably like, like 1901. Who fought in the Civil War? I don't know. Do you know how many continents there are? No. How many states make up the United States? How many states make... Dude! Do you know who the president is right now? Joe Biden. Do you know who the vice president is right now? The black lady. How many states in the United States? Yeah. 29, I guess. 29? I guess. I'm not sure. You know what the capital is? Harrisburg. Oh, is there a capital in the U.S.? Who fought in the Civil War? In the Civil War? Wasn't it... What's his name? Kennedy? Do you know what the capital of the United States is? Um, no. <laughs> how many make up one dozen? How many what? Like, how many eggs are in one dozen? Ten. How long is one decade? One decade. No idea. Do you know what three times three times three is? <laughs> what country is Mount Rushmore in? Japan? No, that's not right. Do you know what year the U.S. was established? 18-something? No. What year did the U.S. gain their independence? Oh, man. I don't even know. It ends with a 72. 14? 72? How many states make up the United States of America? Oh, my God. I don't know, actually. 16, 13? We are in serious trouble in America, and it's in part because of the education system. As it's obvious, kids are not learning. People are not learning true history. They're not even learning the basics. Why? Uh, you know there's a lot what's infiltrated the public education system. We're going to talk about that today. Good morning. Welcome to Stand Up for the Truth, friends. Um, the spiritual warfare in these parts have been off the charts. We need your prayers. We need uh, even more than your financial support right now. No, that sounds weird to say, but we need prayer here at this ministry uh, Stand Up For The Truth podcast and Q90FM. That's all I will say right now. But today, we're so blessed. We're going to be talking about socialism, real history from Plato to the present. We're also going to be talking about how did the Pilgrim's Covenant under God become Marxism's The State is God? Um, how can Christians actually support socialism? Uh, we're going to talk about so many of these things with today's special guest. We're blessed to have historian Bill Federer with us. He's a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, so many books, great books. Hope you have at least one of them in your library. He's the president of AmeriSearch Incorporated, a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. His American Minute radio features broadcast daily across the country and online. His Faith in History television program airs on the TCT network on stations across America via DirecTV. His first book, America's God and Country, Encyclopedia of Quotations, has sold over a half a million copies. His works have been quoted by authors, politicians, leaders, journalists, teachers, students, and in court cases. And we'll talk a little bit about his book today, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Bill Federer, welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. David, great to be with you. Hey, great to have you, sir. We're so, so blessed. And I just want to talk about, first of all, what you've been doing recently. And I saw something that you were involved with, and uh, it was over at, um, don't even remember the website right now, The Rise of Global Government. It uh, was put on by Regent University's Robertson School of Government. It, they hosted this. It was a virtual conference, and it was moderated by Michelle Bachman, former congresswoman and now the RSG dean. And we'd love for you to just share a little bit about that and how people can watch or get a hold of that. Sure. Um, so uh, Michelle Bachman is a former congresswoman and also former presidential candidate, and she's the dean of the Regent Robertson School of Government, and she is just a champion for our America, not just in wanting to teach the students, but she's organized uh, 
uh, several different online symposiums. One was on the 9-11 anniversary. That's sort of being forgotten, but it's important to understand mm. that whole uh, motivation behind that attack. Um, and I wrote a book on the history of Islam and how uh, Thank you. Muhammad transitioned from being a religious leader to a political leader to a military leader and, and, and their history of conquest. Uh, she did another one on the rise of globalism and uh, and then another one on the election. And all of the individuals and organizations that have done in-depth research on voter fraud hmm. and how it's amazing that uh, the mainstream media just doesn't want to talk about this. That, uh, okay, a whole lot of um, amazing discrepancies that took place in the 2020 election. Mm. that, uh, you know, Zuckerberg pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into left-wing groups. And uh, anyway, that's a a whole um, topic in and of itself. But uh, I'm pleased to be uh, a board member of Regent University, and I get the the privilege to work Mm. together with Michelle on several projects. What a blessing. Uh, We really appreciate her voice as well. And we will put that link to uh, Globalism Rising, Authoritarianism and the Demise of Civil Liberties. We'll put that link in today's podcast blog at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Bill, we weren't going to start with this since we we heard all those clips. First of all, let me just get your take. I know you've heard a lot of these man-on-the-street interviews, and you've been a historian. You understand. You've taught history. You understand the true history of America and globally the world history, the, the horrors of socialism that we don't hear much about anymore, and that's by design. Um, your just impression of these people, I believe that one was on the streets of New York City, and most of those, if I remember right, most of the people they, that were interviewed, it looked like they were in their 20s or 30s. Just your overall impression of that, not being able to answer some of the most basic or simple questions. Yeah, it's either a um, lapse in their education or it's intentional. And when you study how uh, you transition republics and democracies into dictatorships, Mm. uh, it's important to have an uneducated populace. Mm Mm-hmm. I know that sounds strange, um, but uh, I wrote on the history of writing. And so uh, around 3300 B.C., you have the invention of Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Uh, this is the beginning of writing. You take a stick, poke it in clay. Um, and it was basically a method for kings to keep track of everything they owned. And so the first invention ever was the plow. King was a tiller of the soil and um, as people would transition uh, from hunter-gatherers to agriculture. Uh, but then people started hitting each other with these weapons, uh, these tools, and they turned into uh, fighting. And so that's what motivated people to gravitate together for protection. And when you get people together, someone's always a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest, and everyone says, you be our captain. And you fight, you win, you live. That's a good thing. But then this captain has kids and grandkids who claim to be a special family that everybody is indebted to and everybody's appreciated of. And before you know it, it turns into a political family. And everybody has to kiss up to this family. And before you know it, it turns into a political machine. Before you know it, it turns into a, a gang, a, a, a king. Mm. And everybody in town has to curry their favor and if you're on their wrong side you're ostracized you're kicked out of town or you're killed and so uh you i trace it through history then you have gilgamesh king of a rook and he's the first one to invent building a wall around a city and then you have sargon of acadia that conquers a bunch of walled cities around 2250 bc and, and has what's called the first empire and you begin to see this um that basically kings is the default setting for human government. Hmm. And you put some babies in a playpen, one takes the rattle from the others. <laughs> put some kids on a playground, one's the bully hog and the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique, and one of them is the diva. You put some people in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief, put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And all a, all a king is is a glorified gang leader. 
Um, now, this trend of selfish power wanting to concentrate, uh, St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. Hmm. And so it's, uh, it's again, the, the default setting. So if you were the king, right, or if somebody in the listening audience was the king, um, that would be pretty cool. But then let's say that you have a sister that you really love, and she gets married, has a kid. Now the kid's a teenager. And he's hanging around the wrong friends, and he's drinking and partying, and he hits someone with the car and kills him. And now he's facing manslaughter charges and prison time. And your sister comes begging to you mm. and says, you're the king. You're not going to let my little Johnny get locked away, are you? It wasn't his fault. Those other kids talked him into it, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to say to your sister? Well, I'll let little Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. Guess what? As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. Mm-hmm. You just sent ripples through your kingdom that if somebody's family or friends with the king, they get special treatment. If they're not family and friends, they don't get that. And if someone wants to point out your favoritism, you'll be embarrassed and want to shut them up. And it turns into being oppressive. So it just happens. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And as the centuries go on, these kings get bigger. Clearly, there's a global goal in mind. Mm-hmm. And if any of these kings hadn't died off, any one of them would have been happy to continue to conquer. I mean, here's Genghis Khan kills 30 million people from Korea to Hungary. Mm. If he hadn't have died, he'd have been happy to keep killing. Yeah. Tamerlane killed 17 million. You know, Mao Zedong killed 80 million. You know, the Napoleonic Wars, 6 million. Ivan the Terrible, you know. Um, so if these kings hadn't, so in that sense, death is a blessing, right? Mm. Jesus, remember the, de- the devil tempts Jesus, and he says, um, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, for they've been delivered unto me, and I can give them to whoever I want. And Jesus says, um, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, I shall, man, shall live by, not, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But you read that, and you say, that's pretty audacious of the devil to say all the kingdoms are his. When did he get them? When Adam sinned. Adam was in charge of the garden, and we know that because he named everything. Naming something means you have authority over it, right? You have kids, yes. you get to name your kids. And so Adam named everything. He was the, he was in charge, but the Bible says, to whomever you yield your members' servants to obey, to him you are a servant. The moment Adam obeyed Satan and ate from that tree, Adam was posturing himself as the one taking the orders, and the devil usurped being in charge. Mm. And all the kingdoms of the world have something in common, they're ruled through fear. You do what the king says or he kills you. That's the ultimate power that he has, right? The last resort, he can kill you. And so uh, Jesus tells the apostles, he says, uh, the kings of this world are called benefactors and they rule over the people. But he says, it shall not be this way among you. The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. I'm among you as one who serves. So Jesus is talking about a change in the flow of power hmm. instead of top-down rule through fear it's bottom-up rule through love right through through wanting to serve your neighbor and love them and and so we see a a, a conflict immediately here yes. but um so as we go through history and we see these kingdoms uh they keep getting bigger because with the next military advancement the next king can kill more people. And so instead of killing with a rock, like Cain killed Abel, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a big, long, phalanx spear that Alexander the Great's men had hmm. or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented or, you know, the stirrup or, uh, you know, the, the weapon improves, but it's that same fallen nature, the same libido dominandi that, you know, St. Augustine talked about. And with technological advancements, the king can track more people. Yes. You know, Augustus (laughs) Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called a census. Mm. (laughs) Right? I mean, that was modern technology, right? Yes. If he could have had, um, you know, 5G and cell phones and everything, he would have tracked people that way. So this, um, this trend for power to concentrate clearly has a global goal in mind. Mm Mm-hmm. And at some point, it's going to max out on a global level. Um, and uh, so uh, I trace through history the alternatives to kings. They're relatively few, and they have a relatively short lifespan. 
So the first instance of a nation with millions of people ruling themselves without a king was ancient Israel. Hmm. That first 400 years out of Egypt. Interesting. Before they get King Saul. And so this is uh, an anomaly. Here you have kings and pharaohs and Caesars and emperors, and you have a nation that millions of people and no king. And it worked because every single citizen was taught the law. And they were all personally accountable to God to follow the law. And they were taught to read the law. This was interesting. So there were 1,500 cuneiform characters, but they were only for kings and and their scribes uh, and their ruling class. It was basically uh, started as the king keeping track of everything that he owned, and he owned everything in town, and they wanted to tally it. So it started as an accounting method. In China, the emperors counted with uh, knots and ropes. That's how the scribes did it. And then they had an abacus, rods with beads, and they would slide them back and forth, and that's how they would count. And uh, and then uh, only uh, there were there were three thousand Egyptian hieroglyphics. Only one percent of Egypt could read. Wow! Uh, I mean, reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. Yeah. Imagine if you had to teach a kid three thousand hieroglyphs in order to read something. <laughs> China had 10,000 characters, but again, only for court records. Only the scribes could read them. And um, so when Moses comes down the mountain, he doesn't just have the law. He has the law in a simple 22-character alphabet. First letter's a left, second letter, Beth. Sound familiar? It's so easy to learn. Kids could learn it. (laughs) No longer is reading and writing the secret communication of the ruling class. Everybody could read and write. Why? Because everybody was in charge. And so we see that Israel was a system that empowered the individual. So the individual gets land, right? So, so wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always going to be conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he's going to take away the land and kill you. But when ancient Israel went into the promised land, every family was given land. That was their permanent possession. And if you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. And you can be moved upon to give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. I highlight socialism. Uh, Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism. Mm-hmm. And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. Wow. So if you don't own any property, how can you be charitable? How can you give away what you don't have? Exactly. Right? No, the Bible says you get entrusted with stuff, and then you have opportunities to manifest on the outside the love of God that's on the inside. So let's let's but, uh, let's let's talk about this briefly. We've just got two minutes left in this segment. By the way, we're speaking with Bill Federer. Um, this point that the Bible does talk about private property and it it doesn't say it is evil it doesn't say you know you you should redistribute the wealth it's interesting so please elaborate on that the fact that the bible because some people have have some confusion about this bill yeah i wrote a book uh, on socialism and i go through this people say well wasn't the early church socialist no the early church was the early church socialism is counterfeit early church Mm. And the difference is between the word voluntary and involuntary. Amen. So that early believers voluntarily sold their property, and they voluntarily laid the money at the feet of the apostles for the church to distribute. They didn't have the government taking away their land. That's right. And then be involuntarily forced to lay the money at the feet of Pilate for the Roman government to redistribute. Hmm. You see, wherever you have the government redistributing anything— the person doing the redistributing is always going to be tempted to funnel a little extra to their family and friends on the side. And they're always going to be tempted to hold back from someone they don't like. And before you know it, it gets discretionary. And the saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. Mm -hmm. 
So every attempt at everybody owning everything equally always ends up with a deep state bureaucracy passing out favors to their friends with the most corrupt guy at the top. <laughs> the early church okay, we've, had the model. Go, we've actually got to take a break right there, Bill. We'll continue that when we come back. Uh, Bill Federer's book that we're talking about, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, is available at AmericanMinute.com. Also, of course, it's on Amazon.com. We've got a lot more to talk to him about when we come back, including how the Pilgrim's Covenant under God became today's Marxism's The State is God. Coming up next on Stand Up For The Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Do you know what the square root of four is? Sixteen. Who fought in the Revolutionary War? I don't even know what that war is, to be honest. Do you know who the leader of Russia is? Um, I forgot his name. Do you know what the First Amendment is? No. Do you know what the Second Amendment is? No. What are the two countries that border the U.S.? The United Kingdom and Europe. That physically border the U.S.? Like on a map? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I know that one. Venezuela and Alaska. What two countries border the U.S.? What, Africa? Do you know who the leader of Russia is? Leader of Russia? <laughs> who fought the Civil War? Isn't it like Great Britain, Australia, England? What two countries border the U.S.? Oh my God. Can you name three countries in North America? Um, I would say Colorado. Okay, one. Um, Nevada. Two. And let's say like Massachusetts. Or oh Lord! Whenever I hear those clips, and uh, I, it, it, it makes you want—you're on the borderline of laughter and tears because it is sad. But this is by design. This dumbing down of people of, citi- of the citizen citizenry. It starts with the education system, as you know. We are not making this up. You can go do man on the street interviews. They've done that. In fact, one of those people that was interviewed was he was literally wearing a um, graduation hat and gown. Th- this is where we're at now, friends, in America, sadly. And most of you know that. Our guest today is Bill Federer. You can get a lot of information on him at AmericanMinute.com. You can also go to TruthAndLiberty.net. Uh, Bill, is there a, a better website than one of those two that we can send people to? Uh, AmericanMinute.com is my direct website. Great. So AmericanMinute.com. And there's great books on there for God and country, uh, miracles in American history, prayers and presidents. That's a good one for today's uh, The Lie of the Separation of Church and State, right? So we can go back and look at founding documents where they, you know, alluded to God or, or the Bible or the Ten Commandments. So we are in trouble, Bill. This is what we've been talking about. But I want you just to continue what you were sharing before we, uh, took a break because we, we want to really inform our listeners and how they can, um, help I, we we can't educate people. We can point them to the right sources and try to get people to to think and understand. We have not been learning true world history or American history. And so, uh, what would you like to share based on what you've heard? Well, um, my book on socialism. I go all the way back to Plato and sort of to lay the block upon block uh, understanding. And Plato, in his book Republic, uh, refers in passing to Atlantis, which he, which would have existed 800 years before him. And uh, he writes about it being an island in the Mediterranean that's highly advanced and highly civilized. And he considers it the epitome, the ideal society, and it's completely structured. And, you know, on the island, it's got the city with... Uh, canals around it and circles and circles. And then on the inner circle, there's like the castle. And uh, now it was sunk in the sea due to a, uh, a volcano or an earthquake or a tsunami. Whether it existed or not, there is an island in the Mediterranean called Santorini. And it is what's left of a volcano. Hmm. 
And it all that's there is the rim. And the entire middle of the island is blown out. Uh, Santorini, I visited it in college. It's a beautiful tourist uh, island because the, the city is built all along this rim. And it goes in a semicircle around uh, the ocean there. And um, so if, if, if that was it and it blew up, it would have sent a tsunami all across the Mediterranean that would have destroyed lots of cities there. But nevertheless, Atlantis. Plato keeps referring to this as the ideal mm-hmm. society. And, uh, but then he talks about how democracy is different. And Plato actually did not like democracy. Um, and so he, he talks about demos means people, crossing means rule. So in a democracy, the people rule. And he considers democracy unstructured. So Atlantis is structured. Democracy is unstructured. And Plato says that the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everybody tolerates each other, different opinions. It's great. But then he says they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off. Till finally they're tolerating lawlessness. Hmm. And it turns into chaos and insecurity for life and property. And people can be robbed and beat up and stores, you know, smashed and set on fire and just lawlessness. And then people begin to clamor for someone to come along and fix this mess. Yep. And that's when somebody comes along promising to fix it, but they begin to usurp power, usurp power. And before you know it, they, they stand up in the chariot of state holding the reins of power and they're revealed as a tyrant. Hmm. And so that's the model. Now, this, um, this idea of tolerance preceding chaos preceding a dictator, this was studied by somebody named J.D. Unwin. He was an Oxford anthropologist, and he wrote a book in 1934 called Sex and Culture. And he studied 80 major civilizations over 5,000 years, and he found trends. And one of the trends that he observed was that sexual promiscuity always precedes the collapse of a civilization. Mm -hmm. Like, really? Yeah. Uh, He says that civilizations go through four main steps. Sort of like a plant, right? It goes through the sprouting stage, and then it goes through the growing, and then it goes through the bearing forth fruit stage, but then it reaches this last stage where it gets rotten, right? And um, so he says the civilization's first stage is pain and poverty. They go through a war, they go through a famine, they, they work together, and they work hard. And so that's the second stage, they become productive. And then they begin to work together and become patriotic, and then finally they get prosperous and they're enjoying their prosperity and then they get pleasure focused and promiscuous and indulgent, undisciplined, lawless weekend, and then they get conquered by the next rising civilization. <laughs> and he says it's like an athlete. Hmm. When the athlete is young, he's focused and disciplined, watches his diet, he puts us push ups, he exercises, he's just really, really, you know, intent on winning this championship. And then finally he wins it. And he is the champ for a couple seasons. And then he gets a little bit lazy and he enjoys all the fame that comes with it. And he doesn't exercise quite as much and maybe eats a little bit of fatty food. And then, you know, maybe uh, gets a little bit lazy. And in his mind, he still thinks he's the champ. But he gets challenged into the ring of competition and he gets the tar knocked out of him because in reality, he's turned into a couch potato. And so that's the way these civilizations go. Mm-hmm. They start young, they're focused, they work hard, they made it through the, the famine and the war, then they become patriotic, and then they become prosperous, and then they want to enjoy their prosperity, and they get promiscuous. Um, J.D. Unwin, he's, he's not a Christian to my knowledge, he's just an Oxford anthropologist, he calls it a sexual marketplace. Hmm. And he says when women as a whole say nothing happens unless there's a commitment, the guys say, okay, they make the commitment, and then they go out and they work really hard to provide for their wife. And then another emotion happens. There's children, and they find themselves being protective. And when all the men of the country are becoming productive and protective, then the country becomes productive and protective and patriotic and um, industrious and creative and innovative and expansionistic and even militaristic. And, uh, and there's lots of kids being born to fill the ranks of the military. Um, but if the, the, the women say there does not need to be a commitment, 
then water seeks its own level, and you'll have a bunch of guys saying, hey, pleasure time, and they end up becoming selfish mm-hmm. and lazy and indulgent. And, and all of a sudden, uh, when enough of the men of the country get sexually promiscuous, um, and there's fewer kids born to fill the ranks of the military, and the ones that are born are born to, you know, not a family scenario, and so they don't have good uh, discipline qualities, and uh, and the, the society gets weakened, and then they get conquered by the next rising civilization. Hmm. Wow. And um, J.D. Unwin says it's irreversible. Yep. After studying 80 major civilizations over 5,000 years of history, he says once a nation gets to this prosperous and then promiscuous uh, stage, it's irreversible. Why? Because human nature is on its side. Hmm. Human nature wants pleasure. Yes. We want prosperity. And the, the, the same way an individual has difficulty saying no to that fatty food, you have a nation saying, having difficulty saying no to debt. Right? So, so debt is fat to the body politic. Mm. What's fat? That's where you eat something you shouldn't eat and you got to carry it around. It's not brain tissue. It's not muscle tissue. It doesn't add anything to you, but you've got to carry it around. Right? <laughs> What's debt? That's where the, the, the country, the body politic, spends money that it doesn't have and goes in debt for stuff it doesn't really need, and then it has to carry it around. It's not producing anything. It's not inventing anything. It's just debt. It's just, and, and, um, and so when you have a, a country that comes along and says, okay, we've got to have trillion-dollar stimulus programs, and we've got to spend all this extra money we don't have. We've got to bail out Ukraine with billions of dollars that we don't have. Right. You know, um, when you're spending money like that, that's debt. Now, it's interesting. Whenever you see money going to foreign countries, if you look really close, it goes to the corrupt leaders in those countries. That's right. That's who right. get to keep a sliver of it and live like kings. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the money, they funnel back to the corrupt politicians in America that voted for the aid. I'm- so um, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, guess what the poorest <clears throat> country in Europe was? Ukraine. Wow. And our government gave aid to Ukraine. Guess what the number one country giving money to the Clinton Foundation was? Ukraine. Ukraine. That's right. I'm glad you brought <laughs> so that up. Funneling aid to the country yep. that just be, you know, funneling back. And um, the same thing with, with Haiti. Remember that earthquake tsunami and all the money goes to the Clinton Foundation for Haiti. None of it made it to the people in Haiti. So it all went sad. to the Clinton Foundation that went to her, you know, presidential campaign yep. or whatever. So sad. And, um, so, so debt is fat to the body politic, and um, so uh, you look at history. You had the um, uh, the Roman Empire. As long as it was conquering and capturing other countries and seizing their wealth, it was doing good. But then, when Hadrian built the the Hadrian's Wall, which said the Roman Empire is not going to expand anymore, the people didn't want to cut back, and they began to just live the same as they were but they weren't conquering more countries. And so they ended up getting in debt and that's what caused them to inflate their currency. They would mix lead in with the silver. (laughs) They would clip the edges of the coins. They would, until finally it just turned into fiat money that it wasn't worth anything, but they, and then uh, people running off and living with the barbarians and Diocletian said, no, you can't leave your land as long as there's a debt on it. And so, this turned into the Middle Ages where you had a whole peasant class of people that were tied to the land. For a thousand years, they couldn't leave the land. This mm-hmm. is still the way it is in India. They have generational indebtedness, that the debt is passed from one family you know, down to the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. They're born in debt and they die in debt, and they can never get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but the Spanish Empire, right, well, as long as they were living off the gold from the Incas and you know, America, but they would spend it as fast as they got it. Hmm. And then when there wasn't any more gold and the pirates and other countries captured it, um, they ended up uh, losing, you know, they lost a couple of their Spanish armadas and that sunk in hurricanes and, and they got in debt and they lost their lead being the, the leading power in the world. <clears throat> and then you look at the, um, the French empire, the same thing. They overstretched. Uh, the Dutch overstretched. You had the um, the Ottoman Empire. As long as it was conquering Christian countries, you know, it was living off of that. They 
They even had the Dev Sherma, the blood tax, where they would take the boys from the Christian families and force them to become Muslim soldiers called Janissaries that they would use as expendable to fight the next Christian city. They'd put them on the front lines. Um, but then when they were stopped at the Battle of Vienna and so forth, they couldn't expand anymore. They had to live within their means, and they ended up uh, not being able to do that, and they got in debt and debt until finally they created um, Genghis Khan. He conquers from Korea to Hungary, kills 30 million people. Uh, has the largest contiguous land empire in world history. And he invented paper currency. And then it wasn't based on gold. It was just fiat. And you had to you take it. And, and uh, he printed too much of it. Nobody wanted it. And then the, uh, the Mongolian empire collapsed. Um, and this is how Reagan defeated the Soviet Union. It's called the arms race, mm-hmm. where they tried to spend to keep up with us in military advancements. And they were spending, 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 and they got in debt and debt and debt, and they couldn't keep up, and their whole economy cratered. And it crashed, and the, the Berlin Wall came down. So now we are doing voluntarily to ourselves yes. what we did to the Soviet Union yeah. to collapse it. It's interesting. And and would you say, Bill, it, it is by design by you know the globalists and those who do not have America's best interests at heart? Yeah, it's called the Great Reset. So yeah. they want to orchestrate yeah. a global bankruptcy. Yep. So that all of the currencies and basically that, uh, you know, I um, uh, get into the Ukraine and how prior to the Russian invasion, uh, Russia was given signals that they could invade. In other words, uh, we under Biden, we abandoned Afghan- 20 years we've been fighting in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Biden just gives it all away. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, uh, I know I'm. I'm you know, obviously frustrated because we were yep. arming and training the Taliban yep. since the 1979 uh, Afghan-Soviet war. Mm-hmm. And the, the thought that the, the Taliban could surprise us and take our biggest base and us just leave $85 billion worth of weapons and not even try to destroy any of them, it's clear that this was intentional. Yes. And, Thank um, you. But when, when Russia saw that all they had to do was just walk in and we, we left, and then Biden gave speeches before the Russian invasion, saying, you know, we're not going to respond militarily. And, and then Biden pulls all of the American troops and off of the Ukrainian bases, and we mm-hmm. empty our embassies. And we're basically given signals that we're, we've already abandoned Ukraine, and we did abandon the Crimea. And so, so Putin was given all the signals that he could come in, and he did. He took yes. the bait. And what was the response? The response is sanction Russia. Now, let's look at this a little closer. The number one commodity sold worldwide is oil. It's always been sold in U.S. dollars since the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1948. And Russia is the third largest supplier of oil. Mm -hmm. And the sanctions uh, include blocking Russia out of SWIFT, which is the international banking exchange system that uses dollars. And so now Russia is being pushed to have to sell its oil to China in something other than U.S. dollars. And the prince of Saudi Arabia gets, uh, Biden wouldn't return his phone calls because Biden's doing a deal with Iran, who is Saudi Arabia's enemy. And so the prince of Saudi Arabia said, I might consider selling my oil in something other than U.S. dollars. Hmm. And if Saudi does, all of OPEC will, and suddenly you might have 40% of the world selling oil in something other than U.S. dollars. Yep, and this is the way- Yep, this is where we're heading. We've got to take a break, Bill. We, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Bill Federer, we've got so much more with him. When we come back. We're talking about his book, Socialism, uh, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And we're going to get back to that uh, that study and that book by J.D. Unwin when we come back. And also we'll talk about uh, the education system a little bit. What are the solutions? And is it just that the heart is desperately sick? What's the solution? It's Jesus. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest today is Bill Federer, historian and author of many, many books. You can get more information on his website on so many of his books and DVDs at AmericanMinute.com. And we've been touching on his book, Socialism. Bill, you were talking about different countries and how they're handling their money, the monetary system, and how the U.S. dollar has been weakened, and it's on purpose. Um, just just share a little bit more and uh, wrap up your thoughts on that, and we'll, we will move on in a few minutes. 
Yeah, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, and it's a planned global bankruptcy, uh, and it's a, a to get uh, countries to stop using the U.S. dollar in selling oil, mm-hmm. and when they do, the dollar would potentially lose its position as the world reserve currency, and then inflation will skyrocket uh, to the place where, you know, take take $1,000 to fill up your tank with gas, and so every day they add more zeros, and so the government will come along and say, we've got a fix. It's called a CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. It's like a, a Bitcoin, but only issued by the federal government. And it doesn't matter how many zeros are added on every day because they'll just continually adjust it. And, and you'll be able to continue your transactions. But since it's federally controlled, they'll track everybody. And they can program the currency to be able to be spent at some places, but not spent at other places that they deem uh, undesirable to their agenda. And then they um, can turn off your currency anytime they want, like the little lady in Canada that gave $50 to the Freedom Convoy and they turned off her bank account. Yeah. And then they mix it together with what's called ESG score, environmentally friendly, socially woke, and governance. And it's like a China <laughs> social credit score where they take all the information about you. So every single uh, phone and computer that accesses the Internet has an identification code, and they build a profile on that code. And they know every website that you've gone to. Every They know how many seconds you are viewing each page on the website. Wow. They know every video that you've watched. They know everything you've purchased with your credit card. They have a GPS on your phone where they can track and know what places you frequent. And then if you're in the vicinity of people with low ESG scores, your score would go down. And and they build all this together uh, to decide whether or not your money's going to work. Hmm. And this is their goal. But if they just did it, people would say, we don't want the government tracking everything. So they need an enemy to blame it on. They need something. And uh, and so this is what the Great Reset's about. Yes. Um, in, in, in addition to that is the orchestrating of a food shortage, but that's, uh, and then, you know, China shutting down their factories, uh, so we'll have a, a shortage of all that, and it's, it's, it's scheduled to hit right around election time. And Interesting. But, but that's, you know, a, another topic. Yes. But I do think that, um, uh, back to the J.D. Unwin and this idea of, Sexual promiscuity always precedes the collapse of a civilization. John Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson in 1818. He said, have you ever found in history one single example of a nation thoroughly corrupted that was afterwards restored to virtue? And without virtue, there can be no political liberty. Will you tell me how to prevent luxury from producing effeminacy, intoxication, extravagance, vice folly, no effort in favor of loss is lost. So here... No, no, no effort in favor of virtue was lost. So here we have John Adams saying, how do you prevent luxury from producing effeminacy? This is the J.D. Unwin cycle, that it's the luxury, it's the prosperity that produces a pleasure-focused uh, culture. And with that, it's, it's an undisciplined culture. It's a giving into passions. And uh, Harry S. Truman said, without a firm moral foundation, freedom degenerates quickly into selfishness and anarchy. So back to Plato, they tolerate each other. That's great. Then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off. Till finally they tolerate lawlessness. Yes. And it turns into an unstructured mess. And that's when people say, we need someone to come along and restore order. And Plato says, last of all comes the tyrant. When he first appears above ground, he's a protector. He's full of smiles. And then he says that this protector begins to consolidate power. And people cast it in his teeth that he's getting too powerful. And Plato says, that um, he has a choice, get rid of his power, which he's not inclined to do because he's a lover of power, or get rid of the people confronting him. So he purges his military and his administration, if anybody, with virtue. And he lets the criminals out of jail, and he makes the convicts his government employees and the illegal aliens, and he has a mob at his disposal. And he sends the mob out to destroy his political enemies, but he stands back and acts like he's not involved in it, even though he's the one inciting the mob. Hmm. Sort of like the way um, when, uh, you know, Julius Caesar died and they got Mark Anthony to give the speech. You know, friends, countrymen, Romans, lend me your ears. And he starts off saying, you know, nice things. And then he ends up stirring the crowd up to this mob that destroys all his political opponents. (laughs) Anyway, 
So uh, finally, Plato says that this protector begins to grow unpopular. So whenever you see a leader getting very unpopular in the public opinion polls, the next step is for him to become a tyrant. Hmm. So uh, dictators only have two tools in their toolbox, fraud and force. Fraud is they'll lie to you and take away your freedoms as long as you let them because they're telling you that they're taking away your freedoms for your own good. That's right. They'll take away your guns to protect you. Okay. Um, but once you begin to see through it and you, the person begins to drop in, their, in the popularity polls, the next stage is just for them to come out of the closet and just show themselves as a tyrant. And they, they get all the military purged of anybody with virtue. All they want is people pushing their critical race theory and their, their views and all their political opponents are the enemies with their, you know, January 6th investigations and so forth. Plato says, finally, standing up in the chariot of state with the reins in his hands, he's revealed as the tyrant. Mm-hmm. So this democracy turns into a, t- a tyranny. And Plato says this tyrant will um, uh, be the head of gold, and his administrators are the arms and chest of silver. Together they make up the ruling class. And everyone else is the ruled class. They're the abdomen of iron and bronze. And so socialism is a two-tiered society of a ruling class, a deep state, and then, then the ruled class. And the, the ruling class is above the law. They're uh, politically connected. And the ruled class is um, nobody owns any property. Uh, there's no families. The government decides who gets to have children. Then the government takes the children away from the families. Mm. Plato says that the children will be brought into the city and indoctrinated with with lies. Wow. Says when the true philosopher kings are born in a state, they will set in order their own city. They'll take possession of the children who will be unaffected by the habits of their parents. These they will train in their own habits and laws. And Plato says we want one single grand lie, which will be believed by everybody. So here they're taking the kids away from the parents and teaching the kids lies. Mm. And um, so it's sort of like a, a gene replacement therapy only for a culture. Yes. They got the old DNA put in the new. Well, well, that's interesting, Bill, because one of the questions that we were going to talk about is how do public opinion molders, the molders and shapers of public opinion, how do they end up controlling the population? And you quoted J.D. Unwin, who said 100% correlation between monogamous heterosexual marriage and cultural advancement. And let's talk about the molders of public opinion, because years ago, the those who identified as LGBTQ was one half of 1%. And then about the time the Supreme Court you know, made the decision about same-sex marriage, it was between 3 and 4% of the population. A February Gallup poll found that now 7% percent of Americans identify as LGBTQ. But if you look at the ages between 18 and 24, George Barna last year found an astounding 39 percent. So almost 40 percent of Americans between 18 and 24 self-identified as LGBTQ. We talked about the transgender timeline on yesterday's podcast. We've got five minutes left, Bill. Is this what we're talking about when the molders and shapers of public opinion are controlling and, well, indoctrinating or programming the population. Right. So it started with marketing of products, and in the 1800s it was Sears Catalog and Wells Fargo Wagon, and they tell you everything about a sewing machine. (laughs) And then in the early 1900s they had magazine ads, and they made it look like everybody was using a product, the Keeping Up with the Joneses. And the classic was a guy named Edward Bernays. He wrote a book called Propaganda in 1928, Mm -hmm. and he talks about women's shoes. And he said, the woman goes into a department store and thinks she's picking out shoes when she's not. The marketing executive picked out the shoes for her and paid the actress to put them on and paid the photographer to take the pictures and paid to put it in these magazines. And the women read the magazines and buy it. And so it was basically taking how you market a product to how to market an ideology. So uh, Edward Bernays wrote a book called The Engineering of Consent. So we're a country uh, government by the consent of the government. What, what if you're going to engineer consent? He says, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of the country. And so this idea, uh, you think of Disney, they spend millions of dollars to do what? To influence a child's mind. Yes. So they want to buy 
a toy with a character that they saw in the cartoon movie and they want to buy pajamas and they want to buy lunch boxes and they want to buy happy meals. They want to buy all millions of dollars are being exchanged. And it's all because they were able to get a little kid to want something. Hmm. And so they're, they've just basically taken that to push an ideology, a grooming ideology. And it's this, it's all based on people wanting to fit in. It's a basic human desire. Yep. Everybody wants to fit in. Nobody wants to be kicked out. Mm. And they've weaponized this. And in the classroom where the, the basically um, the teacher is the authority figure and says this, if you don't go along with uh, these views, we're going to make fun of you in the class. And, uh, and Saul Linsky says ridicule is the most powerful weapon uh, of kicking people out of the group. And so uh, Joseph Goebbels, use this in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. He would orchestrate these Coliseum events with a hundred thousand people and they'd begin to give the Hitler salute and everybody else would see everybody else giving it and they'd give it. And, and so, um, this, what we're seeing is now it's all done online Yeah, and they're canceling voices they don't like. And then they're, um, you know, magnifying it to make you feel like you're in the minority unless you fit in with this manipulated engineered group. Yep, the government is suppressing the truth. And the public school system, final question, Bill Federer, um, I know we could spend a whole hour on this one, but a lot of people believe the public school system is not redeemable any longer. We've got three minutes left. Um, I've won. It, it's been hard. My parents were educators. My sister was an educator. My uncle was. This, the system has changed. It's been hijacked. They no longer teach anything about God or the biblical worldview. In fact, they're hostile toward it. Can the public education system be, quote, taken back? I would send adults in there, never children. Hmm. The children, they have these decades and millions of dollars worth of psychological research on how to manipulate a child's mind. Why in the world would you send your child into that? If you want to send adults in there to try to take it back, send them on the mission field, so to speak, fine. But also, every day, the church members drive past the church, and they know what's going on in there. And there's Numbers chapter 30 in the Bible is the silence equals consent chapter. If a father has a daughter living at home, she makes a vow, and the day the father hears it, if he's silent, the vow stands, and she's bound. But if the father objects, then she's free, and the Lord forgives her. And So this concept of silence is consent is um, in wedding ceremonies. Hmm. Pastors, anybody's against this wedding, speak now, because if you hold your silence, then you're giving consent. And so if you're driving by a public school, and you know they're teaching this transgendered stuff in there, and Jesus says in the beginning God made a male and female, and if you're silent, you're giving consent to that. Just the same way you'd be giving consent to a wedding by your silence, you're giving consent to what's being taught in the public school. And Jesus says, if you allow one of these little ones that believes in me to stumble, better that a millstone be put around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. And so more and more churches are realizing, hey, uh, we got to run church members for school board. We yes. got to get, we got to, because we know what's going on. Uh, and most school board races, I mean, a relatively small number of people vote to get them elected that's right i mean in in many areas you just get one or two churches to turn out and vote and they can fill the whole school board with church members it's so doable yeah and this this nonsense oh i don't want to get involved okay are you not getting involved you're giving consent if you're giving consent then you're going to get judged with a millstone around your neck bill thank you for putting it so provocatively but people need to hear that thank you for your time today AmericanMinute.com, Bill Federer. God bless you, brother. Keep keep doing the work you're doing. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, tomorrow, Pastor Tim Stevens, Joe Schimmel on Thursday, Dran Reese on Friday.